My name is Robert Schreiner, and I've just written a novel called The Wolves and the Greyhounds, and you're listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and if you are new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk with an author and a music historian. We get to talk with Tom Locke. We'll talk to him about his time working with Ampex, what it was like doing post on 21 Jump Street and the X-Files, and we'll take a deep dive into his book, Moments in Time, Stories About Artists and Songs. Now, Tom, he's had an amazing career, and I can't wait to talk to him about it tonight. So if you would like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now let's get started. Tom, sir, how are you? Great, Jay. Good evening. It is so good to have you here. I've been looking forward to this. So could you just tell us how it started? Sure. Uh, I uh, grew up in Toronto and got to Vancouver in 1984. And strangely enough, got involved in the accounting industry. I actually worked for Deloitte, <laughs> of all people. And had no desires of being a CPA. What I had was some foresight to see, hey, if I get involved in the accounting visit, look at all these businesses I'm going to visit. Maybe I'll find a niche there. Although I, you know, numbers did come fairly easy to me. So uh, I did that. And one of the clients we had was a company you'll probably appreciate was a company called Ampex. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Ampex, of course, were big in audio and video post-production equipment as well as tape. And, uh, and just for background for people, everybody, I wonder how Ampex got their name. Well, actually, it's Alexander M. Pontioff, Russian, and so the AMP, and they put EX on the end for excellence. And that's how the name came. There you go. It was one of the top products, too. It was. For your record fans out there, they're collectors from the 50s and 60s albums, flip them over. And you'll see recorded on an Ampex 350 or a 351. And the tape back then, you may have used it for 406, 456 for the big brands for doing tape recording at that time, right through to the 70s and the 80s. Right. I started in a studio in Boston, and we had a Studer tape machine. It was a 2-inch 16-track tape machine. But you mentioned something in there I found interesting because it's parallel to my world, and that's starting in accounting. My first degree is actually in accounting. So how do you feel like your education? Because you eventually went on to get an MBA. So how do you feel yeah, that education plays into your role now? Well, I think it was uh, actually paramount because I was a suit in the industry as a president CEO of a post-production facility in Vancouver, which I'll, I'll get to. But having that business acumen and understanding when we say it's show business, the emphasis for success is really on the latter part. It's, it's about the business is it's no different than any other industry or stuff you work in. You know, there is bottom line orientation. you got to produce. you got to perform. And trying to align 
business skills within a creative marketplace, if you will, in, in companies and the people and production people I work with, that was really the, the, the challenge or actually the opportunity for me to move forward. And so yeah, I really thank my, my days um, there doing my MBA there, done by, by the way on the Harvard case method. So it was a, it was a whole um, Boston angle to it. Another, another thing we have in common being a Bostonian and spending some time over at the Harvard Business School myself. I truly appreciate their case method. And I also went to the University of Queensland, went to the University of Queensland over in Australia, and they also followed the same method. I really do feel like it enhanced the educational process. Well, I, I could totally concur. And it's funny you mentioned Australia. I actually worked in Australia for Ampex in 1983. They sent me over to realign their subsidiary. My strong point in my background was relationship management. You know, yep. getting the people to work together as a team, showing that there was trust in them. And they also weren't like Barney Fife with no bullets in their gun. They had something they, they could actually perform and uh, felt like they were achieving something. Again, funny. That's what my background is. My degree is in business leadership yeah. to take care of teams like that. So it's pretty funny. So let me just ask you flat out, are, are you my father? <laughs> I don't know about that, but, you know, I have to bring this up because it really started your acronym, I yep. thought, was brilliant. You know, innovation, development, engagement, action, sincerity. That's terrific. My acronym, and this oh. I'll share with you, <laughs> is, is a, and we have a comedy background as well, but my acronym was LAFF, L-A-F-F. Listen, adapt, follow through fun with purpose there you go so i guess there there's probably a very good chance we are related at this point <laughs> but but let's continue down the path of education did you do your education all in one stint that's a great question i have a master's degree in mathematics i did that first and then the whites said hey why don't you come and you know article with us come work with us and i said well i'll do that but i got to take all these different courses so I'm going to do my MBA at the same time. So what I would do is work a couple semesters with Deloitte during what was called their busy season. And then the semester off, which is usually around the summertime, I would take my MBA courses. And then most of my MBA courses, what I really liked about them, they were night courses and they were designed for people working in business. And when talking about theories, and then people challenging those theories with their day-to-day -day works. In other words, live case studies, if you will. So big benefit for me. So I was able to combine the two at the same time. So it worked out great. How did that wear on you time-wise? I mean, that has to be a very heavy load on you. It, it was. I, when I was young, you know, you can stop a bullet when you're in your late 20s, early 30s. You, right. you just make it happen. And I was still playing competitive baseball and stuff at the same time. And, and so I just full service, you know, the odd time, you know, get a couple hours sleep. It was all good. So uh, that sort of built me for the film industry <laughs> in a sense, because the crazy hours right. we were in there. But, yeah. you know, never really thought about it because if, if you're doing what you like and, and you're motivated to do it, not because you have to. Right. Time doesn't become an issue. You make it happen. Well, sir, you lost me with baseball. I mean, I'm a baseball <laughs> fan, but I always played hockey. You know, I figured with you being from Canada, I figured we'd have yeah. that in common, but apparently not. Well, I was a big sports fan and everything. I mean, hockey, I just, you know, wasn't good enough to go on baseball. I had 
I just I just love the game. And see, growing up in a border town like Toronto, you'd pick up the stations out of Buffalo. Then in the you know late 50s, early 60s, in the 60s, you know I had to watch the Cleveland Browns. That was the football team we watched. The Yankees we had to that had to watch. Okay, you know, that, we're done here. Know, it's hurting, isn't it? <laughs> but I was a New York Ranger fan, strangely enough, because I liked the jerseys and I knew a few of the players on the team. So. <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. We're going to have to stop this conversation. <laughs> Being a Bostonian, it's a Red Sox. Um, it's a Red Sox show here, sir. <laughs> now, my, my family's from New York. My dad went to Boston for college. And so I was born right. and raised in Boston. So I would go to New York to visit family, and we'd go to Yankee games. And then when I'd go back yep. home, I'd be going to Red Sox games. I didn't realize till later in life that that's not that's not smart. That's not a good thing to be doing. So I, I had to pick one of the two, and it, I went with Boston. Yeah, a uh, well, good point. Well, to give you an idea how much of a fan of baseball I was, when the game started, when Toronto came into the the, uh, the major leagues in 1977, Ampex we supplied all the tape for the videotaping, you know, of the game. So we ended up getting great choice seats, you know, first shot at tickets and stuff. So I started going to the games. Even when I went to Vancouver, 1984, I had been to every opening day game since 1977. My streak was broken thanks to COVID. <laughs> and how I ironically tell the story is it broke because I knew where I wasn't on my 70th birthday. It was March 26, 2020, no game in Toronto, street broke. I want to finish the education piece here for a second, but I do have to bring up that, again, in that same time frame, I think it was 1976, I currently live in the Cincinnati area, the greater Cincinnati area, and the Reds played the Red Sox in the World Series, and I went to that game in Boston, third baseline, I mean, the whole nine yards, I think we won the game, but we lost the series, and now that I'm in Cincinnati, I don't think they win a game, so... It's flip-flopped. I think <laughs> yeah. I'm the source of the, the bad luck when it comes to baseball. Well, I'm telling you, I'm excited about the team now. they got a really good young team, and I, I think they could be going places. They'll, they'll surprise a few people next year. Yeah, I mean, they're known as, as far as grooming people. <laughs> they get a good player, they groom them for a little while, and they go off to another team. So <laughs> yeah. we'll see. Yeah. But let's go back to the education piece for a minute. Let's just finish this off. I'm just curious. I always want to know when somebody has an education, a strong background, and you do have a strong background, do you think it was worth getting that background? Do you think there's anything that you couldn't have done on your own? I would say that there's no doubt in my mind that it was definitely the thing for me to do. And uh, I had an, uh, an aptitude for learning that way. I was keen about it, which makes a difference. Some people are street learners, and I get it. I respect that, and I've seen it throughout the industry and uh, that's fine uh, a blackboard and a, and a good uh, instructor would make me come alive and would motivate me moving forward and when i think about my education what i think about is the people who taught me we had some great props my math props for example were from nyu and brandeis they're the guys that you know did all the pieces for the math books you know all the time that would come out all the times they were the the, the x checkers if you will of those books so and they were philosophy math guys, you know, I remember them well. Uh, so I, 
just very fortunate in, in terms of some of the professors and stuff I had top marketing guys too. And, and it was funny. It was in, um, I realized I was left brain and right brain and it was nice to have an understanding of the numbers, but would really get my juices going was the creative aspects of doing something, but then have the foresight to sit back and go, Hmm, will that make any money? Right. <laughs> and I took that for granted. And it wasn't until down the line to doing presentations to a marketing group, say, or an accounting firm, I realized, oh my gosh, they're not, they're not getting it or I'm not using the right approach in dealing with them. So if I didn't have that awakening, it's what, what I call education. It was an awakening. How would I know? It's like a baby, you know, in a corner and it's trying really hard to walk and somebody just turns them around and all of a sudden it's clear sailing. Right. That's what education did for me. No, I, I agree with you. Again, having the background and also being a big fan of informal education. I read a lot of books. When I say read a lot of books, let me correct that. I listen to a lot of books. Um, I, I'm not a big reader, but I do listen to a lot of books. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I you know, watch a lot of documentaries. I'm always trying to bring in some form of education into my life. So the informal education, I think, is every bit as important as the formal education was. But what I tell people in, in my path, that the formal education just opened doors. So I don't think there's anything in the curriculum that I couldn't have figured out or learned on my own. But like you said, it's the relationships, it's the networking, it's the doors that have opened because of that. And then later in my life, I went on to engineering school. I could have read books, I could have figured out how to, you know, what buttons to press and how to do things. But again, it's the relationships and the people I met during that time, which led to me working for some of the, the bigger people that I worked with. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what the value of education was. So let's use that as our transition point. How did that then transition into the entertainment industry? Well, it was then deciding I'll, I'll go work with Deloitte's and, you know, go see all these various companies. So I landed up doing the audit for Ampex in Canada. So while we're there, I met some people there and they were doing some changes in their, their management and, and this happens a lot so they came to me and say hey you know our financial area needs some um shoring up we're going to let some people go would you come in here and, and take over this job now deloitte didn't mind that because they meant oh good we have a deloitte guy there now we'll, we'll have the audit every year and could i go in there and do that and it, it was a great opportunity and i, I love the business i love what they were working in so so now I'm working with the company. Head office, by the way, was in San Francisco, actually, Redwood City, California. And I go back and forth there, got an opportunity to help them out in England, got an opportunity to help them out in Australia. And they, you know, saw some management talents, mean, you know, maybe an offer to go to Redwood City. But at the same time, we had guys that are in Ampex Canada, two sales engineers, and one of our uh, top engineers, you know, in terms of equipment and stuff, wanting to set up their own post-production facility in Vancouver because there's nothing there. They sensed and realized that producers were getting tired of waiting to go into TV stations after 11 o'clock at night to use their stuff. Right. And then if you're in Winnipeg, where would you want to go? To Vancouver or to Toronto to edit, in, you know, in the, in the winter? So they um, set up out in Vancouver in 1979 and kept in touch with me and then 1984 I came out and joined them because they needed some help 
how to talk to banks, you know, explain how things work, and also in the public relations side and how to position the company uh, in the marketplace and try to get the information out of what the entertainment industry was about in Vancouver. And I mean, that was fledgling times. I mean, never in our wildest dreams did we ever think we would get to where we are. In fact, when I first started out there in the post-production, we weren't in the entertainment business at all. We were in high-end commercials, doing a lot of work in the high-end commercial areas. Corporate videos were just coming into their own. People realized, you know, using those videos could sell the marketplace. And they were doing small little documentaries, you know. And so we, uh, like Peter Drucker says, took a courageous step and uh, shifted the pattern and said, uh, hey, let's, let's see if we can attract some of the L.A. people. We did that by me going through the back door. Uh, are you familiar with, um, and Eisenhower put out in 1956, the thing about sister cities? Yes, sir. A lot of U.S. cities have sister cities in all parts of the world. Helped to contact the Cold War. Well, Vancouver and L.A. were put together as sister cities. I used that backdrop to come in at another door, and here's the entertainment industry from Vancouver down here all We'll meet some of the entertainment guys here, even though we had met them before, but they would come up, shoot and ship. And we'd say, hey, no, come on up here. We may be able to, you know, help you out here and do a finished product. So we started creating film missions, bringing people up. I'm a firm believer. Nobody tells your story better than you do. As I phrase it, spread your own rumors. <laughs> so we, we'd bring these guys up to Canada. And lo and behold, we started building relationships. And that's how... We got into Stephen Cannell and uh, coming and joining us. And the Fox Network, if you recall, in the late 80s, just fledgling networks started to come on stream. And uh, he had his uh, up to here with Universal and, and, uh, <laughs> and the voice of cutting him out. And so um, he said, OK, well, if you can deliver, let's see what we can do. So um, we're, you know, right place, right time. No fear. You know, we just, you know, made things happen. It, there's a lot of like minds. We all work together. And we brought the union guys in. We brought everybody in, all sitting around a circle. And soon realized everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. Right. Why don't we cure this and build the industry, which we did. Well, we all know how it ended and where Vancouver is now. But yeah. what was your role in that process? Well, it, it was really enticing and the people from L.A. to come up to Vancouver and that we had the stuff they, that they wanted. Stephen Cannell put it to us very simply. He says, look, every day I do my dailies, I go into the, the room, I have a donut and a coffee, and I want to see what's going on at 1030 in the morning. So before they would just shoot it, ship it down the plane. So what we had to do, and you'll appreciate it, because this is back in the days of film, okay? So we'd shoot the film. We'd process it at night. In fact, the first four or five shipments, I was in the car with the taxi, driving it to the airport. It was catch the 6 a.m. flight, but we called the fish flight. That was the fish flight. Down to L.A., guy would pick it up there over the mountain into, into Hollywood. And lo and behold, he got a chance to see his dailies. That is too funny. And the look was great. We, you know, we... Uh, Stuck our necks out there. I mean, uh, but we made it happen. So we were very fortunate. And you're as good as your last foot of film going out the door, as you find in the post-production side of things. It's like your telephone. Yeah. You expect it to work. 
So that's kind of the same thing in any industry. We say the same thing in music, where you're only as good as your last CD or your last release. So totally, I can definitely understand that. So at that time, I know it had to be stressful, and you're you're trying to get something new off the ground. So you're you're basically taking the education piece and you're putting it to work. You're you're trying mm-hmm. to find a way to to start getting a business from nothing to something. So what was the first sign of success for that business? Well, I would go and take a look at the books. <laughs> See, I'm remaking anything on the bottom line. That's first and foremost. Then. Are we missing some opportunities? Is there some revenue streams we should be looking back? Or how, how are we cost-wise? Are we being that efficient in, in what we're doing? And one thing you learn in the business, you can have all the machinery you want. You'll be the first guy to support this. If you don't have the talent behind the machine, <laughs> forget it. It's not, it's not going to happen because it's the talent and that relationship between our editor and the producer in the studios that was really the glue to make everything happen and continue with that repeat business. And we also realized that when we went in the entertainment studio, I was a big fan of let's get more and more series work. Because series work means every week you got another show and we're doing another show. As opposed to movies of the week, we're big movies of the week house there for a long time. They come in, run, slap, bang, gone, eight days gone. Then there's a new group on and you're not even having a breather. There's no... You know, right. There's no flow, absolutely no flow. It, with the series work, great flow. We knew where we were. Now, we had the odd hiccup. I remember the geniuses down in L.A. one time said to us, well, this is great. We got you know, four shows in the can, and they decided, well, for our first show, it's going to be the, the fifth fifth one we did. So we had to work all night over the weekend to put that one. It's like changing the, you know, the lead song off an album. Right? Same right. idea. So it's right at right at the very last minute. As one guy said, Jesus, how successful you were was how good you could take the stuff thrown at you and still come up smelling like roses. Right. Yeah. It's all in how you handle the stuff that's thrown at you. I mean, that's the, yep. the key anywhere. At this point, was this your personal company or did that come later? Well, what happened there was it's ironic. The guy pushed, there was three owners, former Ampex guys, and pushing to come out and work with them. Then one of the guys wanted to get more into production. He was really, he, he was just obsessed about shooting fishing videos, strangely enough, you know, sportsmen. And the other two guys weren't. And they said, you know what? We don't want to be competing with our clients. Their fear was, we don't want to be in production and post-production. We're here, we're neutral. Production comes in, we work. We're not going to do ours first. Or even that perception was not the right thing at that time. So... I went in and did something that you learned in school. We did a leverage buyout. And I designed a leverage buyout for myself and the two partners. And we were very successful in doing it. And our timing was great. We were able to pay back our loan in three or four years. The gentleman went on his way. He was happy. He got his money and he got to do his his own thing. So it worked out incredibly well. But, you know, I, I used to talk in the theory of the leverage buyouts, but never lived through one. But it was, a, it was a good experience. You know, I learned a lot. And then down the line, we um, we took the company uh, public in the mid-90s. So I did a background in there. But um, that almost killed me, uh, to tell you the truth. I was like living two years in one. One, you're doing all the work that's required by the, the public, the SEC, and all these wonderful organizations, bodies, and you're trying to run a business, you know, 
at the same time as president and CEO of the stage of the company. It was, um, it was a, it, it was a real, real challenge as eye opening, but it also allowed me when we were successful you know, to leave the company, still standing right people in the right areas and going to start my own consulting practice in 96. So uh, it was worth the, worth the heartache in the long run, a lot of bumps and stuff along the way in doing it. We were successful in doing it and it was just the right time, but we had a great balance sheet and we had a track record. It wasn't high in the sky. You mentioned in there a couple of times about luck and being in the right place at the right time. Do you feel like luck played a, a heavy hand in your success? Uh, I think timing did. And I think you make your own breaks and I think you make your, make your luck. You're going to get hit in the teeth. But like you said before, um, when that happens, if you're organized or you have that ability to run with the flow and you'll find alternatives, it's when you don't have a plan and, and a, say a plan B backward, that's when you run into a lot of challenges. All right. So you were also talking about the, the dailies and getting series and working tightly with LA. What was the first series that you worked on? That was 21 Jump Street with a little kid by the name of Johnny Depp. You may, you may have heard of him. Yeah, the name sounds familiar. I just can't put a face to it. <laughs> so how long did that series last for you? That lasted three or four years. And see, and we thought that show wasn't going to make. We thought it was the Mod Squad of the 80s. Remember the Mod Squad, the I 70s? Do. Yeah. And I'm going, okay, this is just a do-up of this. Well, hey, we get a year out of it. That would be great. Well, we ended up three or four yeah, years out of it. And in fact, unbeknownst to me, and it was told to me by one of the uh, producers on, on the lot up here in, in Canada, we became good friends. He says, you know, show ended, but I said, oh, I will always admire Johnny Depp. And I said, how so? He said, because Johnny Depp honored his contract because he had a great offer after his third year for, you know, getting into the movies so that they could see this guy's potential. And he honored um, Stephen J. Cannell's contract. And he said, I'll never forget that. That was pretty cool. That is very cool. So at that time, what was your day like? My day was actually pretty good because it was exciting. I would get up in the morning. My first thing to do, I go down and see my buddy in my lab. I get, hey, everything get processed through. Do we have any glitches? <laughs> because you, like, you can't make a mistake processing film. You know, in the digital environment, oh, good, we'll just recut that again. And, you know, no problem. Not with film. It doesn't work that way, right? So I go to, that's good. Did it get on the shipment? Did we transfer this overnight? So I'd have guys come in and work at two in the morning, taking the film, transferring to the videotape, off to the airport, and down it went. So that would be my, my donuts and coffee, making sure everything is going through the day. And then I would sit and talk with my operations team. I always had a an operations meeting every Tuesday morning, not Monday morning, Tuesday mornings. And the reason is because people had to present and perform because I gave them responsibility. So they had to come back and tell them what they were doing in their various areas. Now, I bring that up. It's not a small point at all because I didn't want to ruin their, their Saturday or Sunday. Everybody's a last minute Charlie to a lot of extent. Right. Right? So they had a chance on Monday to make sure they had their act together for their Tuesday morning presentation. Our success was we were extremely organized, and I pushed the organization without a lot of layer. Somebody phones me, I got the phone call. All right, it didn't go through a myriad of stuff, and I paid a premium 
from my receptionist. My first point of sales. A lot of them right, became colorists and the, the whole bit. They had a desire to it. Good, you're going to learn from the mailroom. And that's how we ran our business. You mentioned the receptionist. I laughed because our receptionist had the nameplate on her desk and it said director of first impressions. Oh, I love it. I love it. You know, you're right up my alley. I, I get it. Nothing more true than that statement. Yeah. So you seem to still be more on the business side of things at, at this point, and you seem to be running this organization that was doing something that was artistic. So mm -hmm. what was the artistic piece that your team was doing? Well, primarily, when they would come in and guys would sit down and say, okay, we've got this, with this. The key artistic part of it is, hey, where do you think we should cut this? So they would come in, say to cut it, and we would give some suggestions on uh, on editing it. For commercials, for example, we were still doing high-end commercials, and that, they would call me in. And I'd go in, I'd be Joe Viewer at home watching the commercial. And my big thing was, the guy go, oh, did you see the weave in the top corner? And I, I'm going, no. I said, but this commercial is a second too long. He said, well, then it'll only be 29 seconds. I said, that's okay. Cut it, and then go show it to your guys. So we would do that sort of internally ourselves because we wanted to be the best we could be for that producer coming in. And you also have to remember, when those guys come in, any creative suggestions or any help they could get was great because they're on their last leg of the production. You know, they got budget constraints going over and time is a big issue. So any way we could help them out, we did so. I like that you mentioned the editing of even a commercial. Any content that we create, whether it be in a recording studio for an artist or whether it be a show, we're always editing and trimming fat, things that do not belong or aren't necessary for what you're trying to accomplish. So I appreciate when people do that. It's value. It's value to the viewer or the listener. It also shows there's interest, you know, that yeah. there's genuine interest in thing, And that's just part of the relationship. No, absolutely. So what was the next step? Well, the next step was, okay, we got to keep promoting ourselves, keep doing it because pack it up. Next series goes down with Cannell, worked out with Cannell. It was almost like if the show got canceled or 21 Jump Street left, it was like Velcro on the door. We put the name of the next show, like Street Justice was another one we did. It just comes to mind. That would go up. We meet the new crew. A lot of them was the same crew that they had on and on we, we would go again. And at the same time, we started expanding bigger facilities, bigger studios, because of demand, Vancouver started really getting recognized. And so then uh, we uh, had the opportunity to get involved with X-Files, which was a you know, big show, as you know, and, and then Millennium afterwards. Uh, there was more. They were a pretty, pretty organized group. They um, first was kicking and screaming when they came to do this and then realized from a cost benefit, it made a lot more sense doing it in Vancouver. And the look was what they wanted. So it did, you know, price is soon forgotten if it looks not bad. You learn that there in a heartbeat. And they really liked what they saw. Now, a couple of their actors, David Duchovny wasn't a big fan working in Vancouver. It's right. probably well, well documented over the years. <laughs> and in fact, he got them for the last season of, of uh, the X-Files to shoot it in LA. That was their worst rain year of all time. <laughs> I lived in California for three years, never saw a rain. 
right? I just laugh about it. Maybe one month out of a year, you might get a couple sprinkles, but that's about it. True enough. So, X-Files was my wife's favorite show. She, she has seen every episode and I wow. think more than once. So she's a big fan of your work without even knowing it. <laughs> so what came after this venture here with the company? There were new things happening in, in, in the marketplace. So special effects really started coming into to play big time. Special effects on the digital horizon, not you know going in and editing or splicing tape on our film, excuse me, on the old Steinbecks. Now we're into an, an art form we've never seen before. So, so we, we needed to hire not editors, we needed to hire artists to work with the editor, ideally getting a combination with Utopia. You know, we could do that. So that was our next wave, but it was also a great story in terms of, hey, how are we going to fund, you know, the company moving forward? We don't become the special effects house, you know, in the marketplace. So that gave us a great opportunity to take the company public with something that wasn't going away. Everybody knew about it, and we could be the first in Dodge, if you will, you know, to be involved with that. So that was our um, thing. That that was the excitement in uh, taking the company public and moving forward. Again, great balance sheet, great track record, always made money. This was just the next thing to be invested in. But we needed more money than <laughs> just that to do it and to really make a name for ourselves. So that just logically fell into place in the early 90s, in the mid-90s, and by uh, 94, 95, we were funded, and uh, we were, you know, pretty solid in, in, the, in the marketplace. Very cool. But let's um, pivot a little bit here. I mean, one of the things that we talked about at the beginning is that you're a music historian. So I'm just curious, how did that come about, and what would we consider to be a historian these days? Yeah, well, that's a great question, and I, that's why I don't I don't call myself a music historian. I call myself a music fan, and music has always been part of me. I think I think in my mother's womb, like the, my parents are very when I was born in the fifties, I was probably leaned on the platters and, and didn't note, <laughs> you know, like the, the constant music in the house, the radio, you know, singing, and music it was just was always always all around me. Music is actually my escape. That's what keeps me sane, you know, like uh, because you can do band other things, but it's in the background all the time and and, and the, the records. And I just found it exciting. But what really got it into me was my grandfather. So now it's the early 70s. OK, and I go over and see my grandfather. He's um, pretty despondent. Uh, Toronto Maple Leafs hockey team aren't, aren't playing worth anything. He's given up on those. He uh, can't go in and pour cement in the basement or do an oil change under his car, which he used to think was relaxing. And he he, he wasn't reading. And uh, I'm going, boy, I got to get a hobby. And, and it's funny because I was out there and the music's playing in my car as I'm driving. He goes, hey, this is my hobby. This is what I'm going to do. So I just thought, you know kept in the back of my my mind for all, all these years and then throughout uh, my university days and going through driving to you know school back home and, and that work and that you know I used to work night shift in uh, grocery stores night and then go to university in the morning but we'd have the tunes on you know in the background and they're all tunes that I grew up with at the late 50s and early 60s so they just became part of me you know like and I would 
somehow I would remember the groups or I remember the song. Sometimes the record label. Don't ask me why. We all have these unusual things. I know one guy who, a uh, good friend of mine, what does he do? You name a, a college football player and he'll tell you what school he went to. Especially, And he's great at basketball too. I have no idea. But anyway, so that sort of rambling a bit. I apologize. But that's really what sort of was, you know, became a, you know, a, a part of me. And then if things are tough or down, I, I quietly, you know, sit in the room and turn on the radio, you know, and and at night when we were focused because we had Buffalo. And so you get George, the hound dog, Lorenz in the late fifties and early sixties, piping over this R and B stuff that we hadn't heard in Canada. You know, like it was just great. And I really got hooked on that type of music. I just love the sound and then you know morphing into the two four beat and dance music and all that wonderful stuff so that's how it is so it was always there and it never came forward into my brain until you know later on so you mentioned a couple things in there that i find pretty fascinating but one of the things you mentioned is being next to to buffalo and hearing the radio stations i've been to buffalo so many times i've been at the falls i could see toronto but i've never gone over the border not right. not at that, that location anyway, so I've never actually spent any time in Toronto, but yet I feel like I know it well. Um, but you're talking about music in the the way you look at music, and I think I do it the same way, but I think it's because I work in the industry, I work as an engineer, and I always looked at the artists and their releases as who produced it, you know, who produced the mm-hmm. record, who was the engineer on the record. I was less concerned about the artist than I was about who produced the record. And for me, the celebrities were the people who made the record, not the the artists themselves. So everyone always asks me when I work in Nashville, and they're always like, you met this artist or that artist? I'm like, yeah, I did. But, you know, I got to work with this producer, and I got to work with this guy over here. That's really what it's all about for me. But you have found a way to turn this into a book. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. I had this idea. I just started thinking out loud. We used to play music trivia with all my buddies and that. And I'm pretending I'm driving to school. You're driving to work in the morning. Okay. So you visualize that. And this guy comes on and starts giving you a little anecdote a la Paul Harvey, you know, the rest of the story. Starts putting this out. And then they break for commercial. And then he comes back and plays the rest of the song. And boom, you know. Here's the rest of it. Nice, tidy thing. What a great thing for drive to work or drive home. So, 1986, I make a a demo tape, Bible, and I had a tremendous uh, disc jockey out here in Vancouver. I met it, he's passed since, but he was great. He had the right voice, the right cadence. I wanted to capture the magic. So, I take it to Nashville because I, I belong to the International Forum of Film and Video Producers. Okay, it's a worldwide organization. It's one you're invited into, and one of our members is Filmhouse in Nashville. And Kurt Hahn, I don't know if you know Filmhouse or, or not, but they do all the commercials, TV commercials for radio stations. And so they were big and they would do them, do a donut, you know, different, you know, stuff. Right. Uh, he did a brilliant job on, on all this stuff. So I said, Kurt, would you listen to this and tell me what you think? And he said, well, I'll take it to some of my sound engineers, like a guy like yourself, you know, hearing that, and to some of my clients, because they're all the radio station guy clients. 
So he did. And I said, well, this is kind of exciting. This is great. And he came back to me with the bad news that uh, nobody's into science uh, sound bites. Have you got a Casey Kasem light show for two or three hours or, you know, uh, th that's what we're looking for. You know, that's what we look at. We go in, we can pop this show on for three or, you know, four hours and that covers the time frame. It's interesting and all that good stuff. So that's what they were looking for. So that just, you know, went by the boards. I just kept it, my demo in my, my pocket until a decade later. Then this gets back to our story about timing, right? And my close friends, uh, Michael Godin, he worked for AM Records. He was head of artist repertoire here in Canada, discovered Brian Adams and the Payolas and, you know, groups like that. He uh, said, Tom, he said, I'm going back into broadcasting. He was a broadcaster in Montreal. And he said, I think this Internet thing's going to go. He says, I, I'm going to do an Internet show. So he started in 1997 with this show called Treasure Island Oldies out of Vancouver. Great. So I listened to the show, supported him, and went on the show a couple of times with him, talked about music, etc. Then... For some reason, I said, hey, Michael, why don't we do a soundbite, my moments in time, you know, soundbites on, on your show? And he said, hey, you know, those would be weird. It'd be nice to have a neat little thing that's different than anybody else's. And so we started this. I've been writing those for 23 years. What a lot of people don't know is how I got him to do that was through other guys in the film industry, we, <laughs> you're going to laugh, we had started a company about peanut butter. This one film guy in LA, he loved this peanut butter and he met a guy named Sorrels Pickard. Like nobody could make up. This guy really existed, lived on a peanut butter plantation in Florida. They met on a film shoot. So Sorrels Pickard's peanut butter became reality. So I said, well, why don't we get that as the sponsor for the show? So Michael said, that's good, but he ended up hating me for it because it came out as the Soros Pickers Peanut Butter Pick of the Week, which he <laughs> loved to do that. <laughs> you can understand that alliteration all the time. Sadly, Soros passed on. I read a chapter on him in my book, by the way, the epilogue is on Soros. So we just morphed it into Moments in Time. So that's how Moments in Time came. As a sidebar, you talk about your producers and guys who know and stuff. Soros Pickers is a place in my heart. He was a famous behind-the-scenes singer and songwriter. Good friends with Waylon Jennings, Billy Swan, Christopherson, and four of the records on Rango Starr's Boo de Blues albums were written by Sorrels. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I think of these things all the time. I mean, you just mentioned Brian Adams, and the first thing that popped to my mind is Mutt Lang. Mutt Lang was the producer of Brian Adams. Right on. In addition to, you know, others like Shania Twain, Def Leppard, and, you know, others that people might know. But Mutt Lang, probably, at least arguably, the best producer in the world. So your book, you tell some pretty interesting stories in the book, but it's also laid out in an interesting fashion. Each page seems to have a QR code. Can you tell us what the QR code's about? Sure. Well, I think the big thing about the book, getting back to talking about the story, and I'm a fan, but the book's not about me. Okay, the book is about the music that we grew up with or our parents grew up with. It's almost a disguised legacy book because the stories fine should not be lost. So that was my motivator, okay, first and foremost, my motivator. So one thing that us older generations have picked up from the new generation is the fact that we have 
attention spans of a newt. Okay, it's it's pretty small now. So how could I, in an interesting way, weave a story somewhat cryptic, which the titles are, to get it like a mystery, because everybody loves mysteries, and at the end have full payment. You know, you, you get the full story. So that was the beauty where this came in. Thanks to COVID, I was able to write the book because I had time. I wasn't traveling or doing right. anything. So the book, again, I mentioned Paul Harvey because Paul Harvey was my motivator in how I designed all these things. I love Paul Harvey. It's the rest of the story. Love his stuff. So the first page, it's on the right-hand side, is the story or the cryptic piece. Who is he talking about? Turn the page over. You get the rest of the story. Then in the bottom left-hand corner is that QR code. Click it, and it takes you to the song. Now, the QR codes uh, was a, a benefit and easily understood by my target audience because they all had them <laughs> because they're going to restaurants now. Every restaurant during QR, COVID. Their, their vaccination cards, you know, <laughs> right. QR codes. So they were all hip to that part. So I, I lucked out with that card. To tell you, timing. Timing, you know? timing, not yep. luck. There's, there's timing. <laughs> That's funny. In the second you mentioned it, that's what I thought about. If you think about it before COVID, most people wouldn't know what a QR code was. But after COVID, no. everybody knows what a QR yeah. code is. And there's something that the QR code, the first time I saw it was probably 10 to 12 years prior because the real estate game was the, the first game that really used to, used it a lot in business. Yeah. No, I mean, we used it and we put it on things, but most people didn't know what it was. And at that time, we didn't have statistics that you could run off of the QR code. Now you can run all sorts of stats and find out where people are clicking from or what what they're actually doing and stuff. It's pretty impressive with the information. Pretty scary, but pretty impressive. Let's go back to the book. Can you tell me what you think is the most interesting story in the book? Wow. Uh, that was my hardest thing. By the time I got to, around to writing it, I had a thousand of these stories in the can. So which 120, because there's 12 chapters, 10 per chapter, was I going to put in the book? That was my hardest challenge, to tell you the truth. It really was because, again, how I had to put them in, it wasn't about me. It was about, you know, experiences for all. And then I would relate them to situations that we all were common with. Good example, and I use one I talked about in the back page, was Tommy James and the Sean Dells Oni Money. Now, why I put that in there? Because I started off talking about people going to a wedding. So it's in, you know, the speeches are over, we're going on the dance floor. If that's not the second or third song we, we didn't hear going on the dance floor, I don't know what was. Yeah. We start off with celebration, we move on to money, money. Yep. There you go. There you go. You got it. You got it. Absolutely. So that that was my mindset in the sounds uh, moving forward. There's a couple in there that are personal. Like, believe it or not, I, I'm a pretty eclectic person when it comes to music. But my favorite song of all time is a song by Marty Robbins called Story of My Life, which is a beautiful ballad, and I really liked it. But one of the reasons I put it in the book that everybody could relate to, that was Burt Backrax and Helen David's first big record. And then they did Magic Moments with Perry Como. But that's how everybody's got to start somewhere, right? So it was about telling a disguised way about how they got started. I love stories like that. We have a guest coming on the show in a few weeks named Drew Phillips, and I was talking to Drew over the weekend, and we were talking about 
music that we listened to as a kid and music we grew up with. It was a pretty interesting conversation, so I'm looking forward to him coming on the show. But we do this thing here that we call Unsung Heroes, where we take a moment to shine the light on somebody that works behind the scenes or somebody that has supported you in your life. So is there somebody who has supported you behind the scenes that you'd like to give a little credit to? Yeah, there is. There's a, a guy who supported me. He trusted me. I had a situation with a friend in the marketplace that I met when I first came out here who got into some trouble pretty serious trouble to point it and it cost him his job cost him uh his his home his home life and uh he was under um, house arrest for a period of time and he came to me and he said tom i just want to come talk to you i don't know if you can help me out where it's going so uh i spent a lot of time in front of the last 20 years doing a lot of work with people peeling back the onion finding their success right this is a whole another management this discussion you and I can have because I'm really well into this. And I started figuring out, I said, well, one thing, I always had this interest in sports, and, and, as, he, as he did too. And a, an opportunity had arisen, but I could only be in one place at one time and then, you know, get my fingers involved in a lot of pies. That's when Moments in Time first started. It was actually called Sport Trace. It's Sport Trace with an S on the end, Moments in Time. And it's all legacy stories or pictures, signed autographs of athletes and that over the period of time, which I had a huge collection of and was able to, to buy another collection. And then I was also involved uh, with the, the BC Sports Hall of Fame for, for a number of years. And they had a situation where they had uh, their gift shop just wasn't working. They didn't have the right fit in the gift shop. You don't go have an apparel shop in a Hall of Fame. It, doesn't work. Works in Cooperstown, but it just didn't work here. So we took that over, and I uh, said, "Okay, my friend, here's the keys. You, you run this." And and I watched him grow. Today he he runs his own framing company. He's great in the marketplace. Uh, he's close to his family and his kids. And uh, and but he he's 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 my hero because I look at at him and I go, you know what? I made my life count. A big thanks to Tom for joining us tonight and sharing his stories. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. Please follow, share, and connect on all the socials. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzy.com slash episode 38. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Jay Franzi show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzy.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407 421 5528. 407 421 5528.